You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Thank you, Pastor Jonathan, and everyone who has led us in worship so wonderfully this morning. Thank you all so much. Well, some of you, uh, we've met before, many of you, and it's always good to be in Lima community. I mean, I just love to come here and love you all, love your spirit, your attitude, your heart for people. It's just so good to be here. And we find ourselves in this time of pastoral transition. And uh, as I said to your board uh, a few weeks ago, you know, my concern really isn't that there be qualified people that we'll talk to. I'm confident of that. My greatest concern is that we listen to the Lord and hear what he has to say to us uh, and that it's not all on us, but that we be led of him. So here a few years ago, you all know, most people don't know, but you all would know, you know where New Hampshire, Ohio is. You know, like if you go on Columbus 33, you got the bend in the road. Only thing much that's there, they got Dad's Drive-In, which is not a theater, but they've got really good ice cream, and I particularly like their brats with sauerkraut. <laughs> but that's about all, they have 300 people in the whole little, little village, got a little place that sells maple syrups, had the same sign out by the road for all 13 years that I've been here. I've never changed the changeable letter sign, has never changed once. Things are stable in New Hampshire. <laughs> and uh, we, we had a church, been there for years, and a little stone building, and the church has just gotten down to, I mean, literally just well, sort of like my brother says, you know a church is small when the pastor says, dearly beloved, and everybody blushes. And uh, <clears throat> that was funny. Uh, <laughs> anyway. They literally, they'd have 12, thir- they were down 12, 13 people and finances were, had gotten so bad they couldn't, they couldn't meet in the sanctuary for worship anymore because they couldn't afford to buy the fuel. Uh, through the winter months. So they had this little dirty carpet fellowship hall and so they'd gone over there and they'd meet there in the winter. And uh, they had a pastoral opening and I thought, oh boy, what are we going to do? You know, a little town and, and a little church and no money and what are we going to do? And So I met with their board, which was sort of like the whole church. Uh, and... And, you know, just said, well, we'll just, we'll just see here. So I sent in a retired pastor to go in. And first Sunday, they had 13 that he was there. I said, you know, John, just, just get a look at the thing. Let's figure out what we, let's just see what we can do. And next Sunday, you know, they had like 15 and then be down to 11. And then maybe on a real good day and somebody from somebody's relatives came that, you know, have 16 or 17. I was just like, oh boy, what are we going to do? And I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do. And then I get letters. You know, you get letters, I get letters. So I got a letter and I open it up and there's this letter from a woman. She identifies herself and she says, I teach Sunday school down at the Baptist church down the road from Nazarene. I've heard the church is looking for a pastor and I'd like to know if I could be considered. And I just thought, that's, that's, that's just what I need. It's just go get a woman from a Baptist church, go be, go be the teacher. And, and what am I going to do? You know, I mean, just like good grief. I didn't even answer the letter. I didn't even say, thank you for asking. It's just like, you know, 
Well, then I finally thought, you know, I ought to go over there and preach some point. Otherwise, I'll get accused of being careless and callous. And so I, once I said, you know, I'll, I'll go over and try to, I didn't know what we we're going to do. Well, you know, word got out. So guess who was there? Baptist woman, Sunday school teacher. <laughs> and, you know, you can't avoid her. It just, there she is, you know, and her husband's with her. And I'm like, Oh, boy. And she had put in the letter that they used to go to church there. And I thought, well, that makes it all the worse. You used to go to church there. Now you teach Sunday school at the Baptist church. And you left. And now you think I ought to make you the pastor of this church. So anyway, afterwards, I talked to her a little bit. And, um, you know, she's very nice and introduced herself. And so then, you know, I, I said, I thought, well, you know, I... What do I do? So I said, why don't, why don't you all come to my office this week and see if we get a little better acquainted? So they did, and they, they came over, and we had exchanged pleasantries. And then she said, well, she says, you know, I'm from Louisiana. And uh, she said, I'm, you know, we moved, I moved here all these years ago because my husband's from here. She said, but I grew up in Louisiana. She says, you ever heard of the Duck Dynasty people? I, and I thought that's sort of a personal question to be asking when we're just getting to know each other. I mean... I didn't know what she thought of them at that point. I said, yeah. I, I said, yeah, I've watched some of them. She says, she said, well, you, she said, did you buy the book? Yeah, I bought the book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just there went all my pride <laughs> and reputation, you know. She says, well, you remember that part in the story where the preacher goes into the bar and takes Phil out and tells him he needs to get right with God? And I said, yeah, I remember that. She said, well, that's my daddy. She said, my daddy's been, she said, my daddy led Phil Robertson to Jesus and he's been the pastor there all those, all of 50 years now. He's been there, the pastor of that church where all the Robertson clan goes to church. Well, now she had my interest. Because I thought, well, even if she couldn't be the pastor, I might get a chance to meet Cy. Uh, you know. So she told me, and I, of course I had to ask, you know, about the leaving. And, and you know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, we just got tired, didn't like the pastor, or none, none of that kind of stuff. It was a very, very painful situation that they really took the high road. But she said, you know, I grew up there in, in my daddy's church. And she said, and they didn't, you know, there was never a woman that preached there. She said, but when we were coming here to church, I was sitting here one morning. And all at once, I just felt like God saying to me, I want you to preach. And she said, I thought to myself, well, I thought maybe that's how the Lord talks to me. But I know it couldn't have been him because he doesn't call women to preach. And she said, so, you know, the years have gone by and I've taught Sunday school and all. But I just thought maybe... I thought, you know what, I got to lose. So I bent some rules and made her the pastor. Well, you go over there this morning, they'll have 70 or 80 people. Their little stone church is absolutely filled. They put a new roof on it. Everything coming and going that we need money for, they send money to the district office, missions, whatever it may be, compassion ministry. It's this wonderful, wonderful church that I just love to go to now. So, second week of January, a package came to the district office, and, and um, I saw that it was from Pastor Pam. It was pretty heavy, and I thought, oh, bless her heart, she spent $9 and something on postage, and it's sort of heavy, and I thought, well, somebody gave her too much Christmas fudge, and so she's passing it on. 
that sort of happens when you're the DS. You know, what you give to the pastor and he doesn't want, I get. <laughs> There's no uh, supply chain problem in the Church of the Nazarene, let's put it that way. And so I, I didn't even open it because I thought, well, we're trying to do better in January than we did in December. So I just took it home. thought, I'll let Mona open it and then she can decide what to do with this stuff. And so she opened it and I went in the family room and, and sat down on the hearth, the fireplace, trying to get myself warm. I heard her open it and then a little bit later she came in. She says, I think you're going to want to see this. She hands me the box and top was this envelope with a card inside of it and it was from Pastor Pam and she decorates stuff up real nice and writes and she wrote this letter all about she'd heard that we had 10 churches on our district that are looking for a pastor and then there were all these cards in there and they're all from people in their church and she said I just want you to know we're making it a point to pray for every church that's looking for a pastor on our district. And I just wanted to let you all know this morning, there's a little group, there's a little church out in the country this morning that's praying that God's going to send the right pastor to Lima community. Doesn't that just bless your heart? It does mine. Well, I better get to preaching. This is a Interstate 75 message. What I mean by that is we're going to be cruising about 70 miles an hour and just getting a quick glance at a few sights as we go by. And most of the time when I preach, it's sort of like what you hear is what I mean. And what I hear and what I say this morning, I do mean, but I also want you to know I think there's some implications that are a lot broader, deeper um, than even what I'm saying. And I don't have time to get into them. And that's not even counting what I think the Spirit may be wanting to say to you. So, yeah, I hope you'll hear me, but even more so, I hope you'll, you'll lean in to what the Spirit has to say to us this morning. So with that in mind, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. The big thought of Ephesians is unity, or how appropriate on the morning that we had harmony up here, another word would be harmony. In a nutshell, it's like this. All of creation universally and as a human race and individually is fractured and broken apart from Christ. However, in Christ there comes unity and harmony in the person, in relationships, among all kinds of people, and in all of creation. The letter has uh, what we know to be six chapters uh, and Bible scholar Warren Wearsby helps us out a little bit with this and says, one and three and four and six, they, they break naturally. He says that the key concept of chapters one through three is wealth. And indeed, Paul wastes no time getting to it. Chapter one, verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And in the succeeding verses, he lists these blessings. That is, we are chosen, adopted, forgiven, and seated alongside of Jesus. We have been given the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us. In 2.7, he speaks of the incredible, quote, wealth of God's kindness and favor shown to us in all that he has done for us in Jesus. I have a friend who 
who grew up very, very poor. But later in his life, after living most of his life uh, poor, through some legitimate businesses practices, he became very, very wealthy. And I know this sounds very tacky, but you just had to know where he comes from. He said to me one day, he says, you know, Jeff, just sometimes I, I hold one of my grandkids and I say to them, you have no idea how rich you are. Well, I know that's tacky, but in a not in a not tacky manner. This is the Apostle Paul saying, you have no idea. Do you have any understanding at all how rich you are because of Jesus and all that God has done for us in him? The second half of the letter, four to the sixth, the key word or challenge is walk. Verse one. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In other words, so much has been given to you and so much has been done for you. Now live in a way that matches who you are in Jesus. I'm not sure if I've told this story here before or not. If I knew that I was going to have this job this long, I would have been more careful to have written down all the stories that I've told in what church so I didn't repeat it. But I don't even know sometimes what I've already seen on television. Gospel truth. The other night I was at home. Mona's gone. I was at home. I watched 45 minutes of a 50-minute program, and it was at the last five minutes I said to myself, I've seen this before. (laughs) So if I've told it, I don't know. Here goes. When Mona and I moved to South Carolina and our girls 25 years ago, I mean, when I had to break it to the girls that we were moving, they were small. One's in kindergarten, one, one was in fourth grade, and, and Mona said, I'm not going to be a help to you when this time comes. So she took off for the store, and I knew that was my moment. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, I got I to gotta tell it to them. Well, I start telling them about, you know, Daddy feels like Jesus wants us to move to South Carolina. You know, he has to take some of the blame. And, uh, you know, and I'm trying to sell South Carolina, and they knew about the beach. And so, you know, I'm trying to make that as good as I can. And, and the kindergartner, Danae, she's just listening to all, but a fourth grader, she's just falling apart. I mean, she's just sobbing all about her friends at church and friends at school and, and, and just all of that. And, and parents, have you ever said anything that once you got it out, you just, oh, what did I just do? But you knew you couldn't take it back. And so with his little eight-year, nine-year-old, girl sitting there crying, crying. And I'm like, what do I do? And Mona's not there to help me. And I just said, we'll get a pool. (sighs) And I'm like, oh. I mean, Mona and I hadn't talked about a pool. I'm like, oh, I have no idea. (sighs) Stop the sniffling. But now I'm up for a pool. So they had to stay to the end of the school year. You know, I'm down there living in some two-bit condo looking for a, or an apartment looking for a, a house with a pool that we could afford. Oh, my goodness. So finally one day, classified ads in the newspaper, if you remember either one of those things. <laughs> and there was this house listed, and the price was right. It was a fixer-upper. I mean, it was a fixer-upper, but it had a, a nice pool, but the house was a dump. Oh, brother. And it was in this 
let's just call it mature neighborhood. I mean, we had like to sign a paper and everything that, that said we wouldn't raise swine and, and that we wouldn't put cars up on blocks in the front yard, which in the South sort of a accepted practice. So, you know, you were a little uppity when you lived in a neighborhood that you couldn't do those things. And uh, anyway, but right across the street from us, well, anyway, just to show you how up it was, a neighbor came out pastor there a couple of weeks after we moved in, and uh, we had these cherry trees out front, and they were all done up in toilet paper. And I went and got our girls, and it was like Christmas to them. This is, this is great. Uh, and then our neighbor came over. Oh, Jeff, I'm so sorry. This kind of thing never goes on in this neighborhood. I said, oh, that's all right. I think I know who did it. You do? I said, yeah. She says, who might that be? Like she's going to call the police on them. And I said, oh, I think it was the teenagers from our church. She said, oh, my. What kind of a church do you go to? <laughs> I sort of hated to tell her I was the leader of the pack at that point. <laughs> she was Episcopalian, so it all fit together. But that's another story. But across the street from us, about the same time we moved in, Ken and Barbie moved in. And they had this, I mean, they had this big house. And their house went down to the lake in, in the back. It was really in Ohio, we would called it a pond, but, you know, in a mature neighborhood, you call it a lake. And, I mean, it was a big house, and they had big cars. And, but there was a lot of uproar that went on over there. A lot of, if you just know what I mean, a lot of noise. And... Um, I got knowing some things, learning some things. And that house didn't belong to either one of them. It was his dad's house. And they were just living there, free. But they weren't living into their wealth. And that's what Paul's saying. Do you know how rich you are? Do you know who you really are in Jesus? Do you know who your father is? Do you know who your brother is? Do you know your name in Jesus? Then walk up to your wealth. And so here we are. He begins to talk about this walk, and it goes all the way through four, five, and six. But just for this morning, it's the matter of walking in unity. And he begins with the grace of unity, verses one to three. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace. Christ has done so much for us as, purpose, as persons and as a people together. And now here is our part. And he gives us this, what I call the starting five for Christians. To be humble, completely humble and gentle and patient with others and loving and peaceable. We don't have time to go into all of these. I mean, if this were, you know, if you just take your time, and, and we were in Bible study, we'd pick every one of those apart. But you've got to understand how strange this would have sounded in Roman culture in those days, in which if a, let's just pick the first one, humility, if a man did not brag about himself on a regular basis, he was considered to be a loser, a less of a man. 
And so here's Paul writing counter-culturally, counter-intuitively to these people who've grown up thinking, I've got to brag, I've got, I really am somebody. So it's, here it is that he writes here and later to the, or earlier to the Philippians, he, he would write, be like Jesus who was, humbled himself and became obedient even to the death on the cross. One of the books that I'm reading right now is The Power of a Humble Life. And part of humility is just leaning in to one another and listening to one another in humility. The survey that Harmony talked about earlier, we really want to hear from you. In fact, while she was talking, I thought, I really, really hope that all of you will participate in this. I know that it's not, it's not face-to-face, but we want to hear because your church board in humility is saying, we don't know everything we need to know, and we know we don't know everything we need to know, and we, we are in this together, in this grace of unity. If I really had, had my way, I, I, and if, there were, if, if we could do it, it's not that anybody's fighting me on it, I just don't know organizationally how we could. It would be that we would just sit down and talk with one another during this process with other people. And I would like to encourage you to talk with people that you don't normally talk about about your church. I don't know if you've picked up on this in American culture or not, but have you noticed that we tend mostly to talk with people who are just like us and who think just like us, and we readily dismiss people who don't think and talk just like us. And what an opportunity this would be for us during this period in in Lima Community's narrative, Lima Community's journey. What a time this would be for us just to listen to one another. What do you think? Where do we need to go? What's God got for us next? How can we get better? What might the Lord be saying to us? You know, one of the characteristics of humility is, is it starts with just saying, I don't know everything. I'm not one of these preachers that does this on a regular basis. In fact, I very seldom do it. And I don't really like it a lot when preachers do it a lot. So this is like my one time every five years that I'll do this, okay? You just happen to get it. Maybe once every 10 years. I I can't even remember the last time. But in a moment, how about you do this? Some of you want to get your video, your phones ready because you're going to want this videoed. But why don't you just turn to the person next to you and say, I don't know everything. I mean, with this, this could save your marriage, and I'm being pretty serious about that. Why don't you, seriously, look at the person next to you. Just go ahead and say it. I don't know everything. Yeah. You only have to say it once. I've lost them. I've totally lost them. Four-word sentence, and I lost you. Yeah. Wow. Humility. It's the grace. Paul moves on to the ground. 
of unity, four to six. There's one body, one spirit, just as you're called. In one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So here's sort of like how my life rolls. Pastors move from church to church and sometimes they retire. And so when these churches are looking for a pastor, I come in and meet with the local church board on a fairly regular basis, average six to 12 months for the process. And usually we end up with a pretty good friendship and and they get a pastor and I go on down the road. A little while back, you know, and so after a while, you, you sort of know how these things work and you know how the, eventually we get to a point where we're interviewing prospective pastors. And, you know, I've been through a lot of those and so I sort of know how it works. The, the board has a very carefully prepared list of questions and there's a lot of those and we work our way through those and then I say to the pastor, pastor, is there anything you'd like to ask the board? And generally he'll ha- he or she will have a couple or three general questions or, and or will say, well, by the questions that you've asked, you've answered some of my questions and that's fine and, and uh, then we go. So I'm in a church a few years ago. We go through the first part of it. The boards ask all their questions. Pastor, do you have any questions you'd like to ask? He says, well, actually I do. He said, I'd like for every one of you tonight to share your testimony of how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, he must have never been on an interview before. He doesn't know how to do this. But this will be interesting nonetheless. So he asked the first one. Oh, I knew the story of the first one because he'd only been a Christian about three years and I knew how he came to faith in Christ. He had nothing to do with church, nothing to do with Christ. He really just, as he said, my life centered around drinking a lot. He said, that was just what I liked to do and it was my recreation and, and that was just sort of my life. He said, this, these older couple, they live next door to us. He got cancer. I said, I'd mow his yard and so then when I get done mowing his yard and he couldn't do anything and I just go over and sit with him and he said he kept talking with me about Jesus (laughs) well one thing led to another I mean he got radically converted and hey since that time sitting on that board right there God has called that man to preach and he's presently enrolled in the in the course of study for the church of Nazarene one day he'll be one of our pastors how cool is that so that's a pretty good story then we had another then there's this guy down on the corner older gentleman and he said well he said I grew up never gave God a thought never went to church anywhere at all and he said then I got drafted to go to Vietnam he said my cousin gave me a crucifix on a little chain and, and said, here, wear this. It'll protect you. He said, I thought, ah, can't hurt. He said, so I put it on. So one day we went into one of those villages there in Vietnam and a little girl, about seven or eight years old, she, she was standing there and she saw me and she saw the crucifix. And in her broken English, she pointed at it and said to me, you, me, the same. And I said to her, oh, this is him telling it, oh no, 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 we are not the same. But she just repeated those words, you, me the same. 
He said, I can't tell you what happened to me, but somehow something got a hold of me. And when I got back to the States, I, I made a promise when I was in Vietnam to myself that when I got back to the States, I would at least explore this whole matter. And he said, so I just lived up the street from the church here, and I got back, and I walked down here the, one morning, and I just said to some people, can you help me know anything about God? And Jesus Christ changed his life. This is a theme of Paul's, of unity. Here in Ephesus, Gentiles and Jews. And you know racism and, and ethnicism can work both ways. One of the challenges here, often we think about it was the Jews who were keeping out Gentiles and all of that, but actually part of the issue there at the church at, at Ephesus that, that was, there was just a, a little going on that Paul's wanting to challenge was the Gentiles pushing back against the Jews who had all this long tradition and this matter of, quote, their Jewish Messiah. But our ground of our unity is in Jesus. He is the one. You, me, the same. So I was pastoring in South Carolina, and, and uh, we had, for a good while, a Boys and Girls Club of America used our facilities through the week, and they'd have a couple hundred kids there. And, and the director of that was also a part-time youth pastor at an African, a primarily African-American congregation in town. And I was walking through one day, and he just said, hey, pastor, uh, I'll talk to you for a minute. And I said, sure. He said, there were five of us. And, and he said, well, what I mean is there were five of us youth pastors. I knew what he meant, five African-American youth pastors. He said, we, were, we, we went out to eat last night. We got to talking about your church. And our church had become increasingly racially integrated over the, over the years. And, and he said, we were, he said, last night we were just talking. He said, we got talking about your church. And we said, they got rich people there and they got poor people there and they got white people there and they got black people there. And the thing is, it just doesn't seem to matter to any of them. And we just wondered how you do that. Well, I'll tell you how you do that. You do it in Jesus. <laughs> He's our unity. He's the one who brings us together. It's, it's not us trying to work things out and negotiate. It's not trying. And churches are, are better. And what a witness to the world that our unity is in Jesus. Well, you know what? I got a third point and a fourth point. I'm going to skip the third one. I'll come back. I'll, I'll make a note. Never told this story before at Lima Community. <clears throat> so let's just go to the end. All right. The goal of the unity, verses 13 to 15. Until we all reach unity of, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. 
I've been reading the Bible for a lot of years, including Ephesians and preached from it several times, but it wasn't until more recent times that, that these verses really got hold on me and I got insight into them. And it wasn't from a Bible teacher or from a commentary. It's when I became a, a grandpa and holding my, one of my grandchildren and I'm sitting there and saying, that child's got a big head. So I, you know, I, I wanted to look up and see just, is this normal? So I Googled it. It's the other Bible commentary. The babies have big heads. So here's what I learned. Despite the lack of development in their bodies, babies are born with heads that are an are at an advanced stage of development. I went on to learn, and this is my question to you, did you know that the brain reaches half of its adult size by the time that baby is only nine months old? Little baby, big brain, big head. And the baby's, that little baby, by the time he or she's just two years old, just a little toddler, his or her brain is three quarters of the size that it will be when they are a full adult. So Paul's saying here, Christ is the head. I mean, this really big head. And we are the body. You've heard us talk about us as that, the body of Christ. And now we as the body are to develop into, are to grow into, are to grow in such a way that we more and more match up with the head. And as we do that, that's called maturity. But our maturity isn't isolated. In other words, you don't just go off into the wilderness and grow into Christ and become like Christ. And furthermore, we don't just become like Christ by taking a few classes. Christian, mature Christianity is not just what we know, but how we live and how we live in relation to one another and how we live in relation to one another then is our witness to the world. Oh, Wow. You see, we're supposed to live in such a way that the world looks and says, well, that's how you're supposed to do that. How about that? Later, he talks about that with husbands and wives. I mean, it, it all fits together. So here we are, growing up in Christ together. Well, let me wrap it up. For a long time, my sister and her family lived in L.A., that's Lower Alabama. <clears throat> Just outside of Montgomery. Montgomery. And they attended a large church with several thousand members and, and six, seven services there on the weekend. And for more than 30 years, that church's pastor was John Ed Matheson which is a testimonial that he was a true Southerner. When you go by both names and the middle name, they don't even give you the whole thing. John Ed. So when he was their pastor, sometimes I'd watch their church on television. You ever watch, watch church on television and think, 
why don't they ever make any mistakes at their church? You know? It's because they edit them all out. Edit out, oh, that pastor messed up. They just show a rerun from last year. You know, or somebody's music's not very good or didn't turn the mic on, you know. Baby cried during baby dedication. Yes. You know, perfect children, perfect music, perfect preaching, all of it. Not in John's, John Ed's church. I mean, they showed it all. You know, all of it. It's like, well, that's not even as good as the church I pastor, and we're not on TV. John Ed wrote a few books, but his best one and his most popular one was just called Every Member every member in ministry. I mean, he was no stem winder of a speaker. He was good. He was well prepared. But that was their secret. You see, it's really important who Lima Community's pastor is. And I take that very seriously. But it is even more important that God has gifted you and called you and called all of us and all of us together in ministry. Look out what could happen. Will Mancini in his more recent book, um, Future Church, he talks about this. He says, no one else can do what God has prepared for you to do. You have an ultimate contribution to make and a legacy to leave with your life. And then he quotes from Ephesians chapter 2. For we are, we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. You and I created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. God has something for you to do. Well, I tried this in the first service and it, and it didn't work very good so I'm not going to do it in the second service. But in the first service I had him look at the person next to him since it worked out pretty good earlier in the sermon and just look at the person next to him and say you're gifted I'm not going to ask you to do that but you are and we are and together God has good works for us to do and God has good works for Lima community to do in the future works he has prepared in advance for us to do. Amen? Amen. I invite you to stand with me, please. So all those years that John Ed pastored down there at Fraser Methodist, the end of every service, they'd sing. They'd all take each other's hands, which I know we can't do that because of COVID, but they'd all take each other's hands right across the aisles, everybody in their rows. And they'd all take each other's hands and they'd sing the same song. 
little course written 1974, right in the height of the leisure suit era, no less. Hard time in America. Sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. I just lost that holy moment. Let me bring it back. And they'd take each other's hands and they'd sing these words, bind us together, Lord, bind us together. Bind us together in love. Mm. There's only one God, there's only one King, there is only one body. And that is why we sing, bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, bind us together in love. So Jonathan has helped me out here. I mean, this song was written before he was on the earth. Before he even had half a brain. (laughs) But he's picked it up and it's so beautiful. And I just want you to sing it with him this morning before we go. Together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. Together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. Jesus, do just that. Hear our prayer. And we walk into our tomorrow knowing you have prepared in advance good works for us to do. And may each person that's part of this body live in to the gifts that you have given them, that they might serve you by serving others. And may we live looking forward in faith, believing that the best days are ahead. These things we pray, Jesus, for your sake, for the coming of your kingdom, and in your name. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks so much for letting me be with you. God bless you as you go this morning. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.